3: radio estrus episode 16 a dragon is no slave
2: Hello listeners and welcome back to another episode of Radio Westeros and this time it's all about Daenerys Targaryen. I'm Yoke Boy, broadcasting from England, and with me is my co-host Lady Gwyn.
3: Yeah, hi there listeners, I'm here in Boston and before we get started we just have some quick housekeeping today. This episode marks the one year anniversary of Radio Westeros and we want to thank you listeners so much for all your support and for spreading the word.
2: Yeah, it's been a great year, and we're so glad to have you all on board. And one thing that we'd like to mention is that so far we've not been accepting any donations, but Lady Quinn and I have growing debts and overheads, and so now we've put a PayPal link at our website, that's RadioWesteros.com just in case any of you feel like helping us out.
3: Yeah, and so thanks in advance if you were able to help out with keeping Radio Westeros going strong. And anyway, let's talk about Daenerys. We have a long and detailed episode today. First, we'll look at how her opening chapter gives us a grounding of her character and themes. Then we'll analyse her journey through the rest of Game of Thrones, where she rises from a commodity to the Mother of Dragons. We'll also assess Dany as a conqueror in Slaver's Bay, and then a ruler
2: in Meereen. And plus, we'll do some theorising as we discuss where Dany's house with the Red Door might be. To break up the analysis a bit... We have readings from the paya and the Dracarys moment in Astapor, With a pseudo advert, music from Carleen and speculation about Danny's future, that will be the episode today and we really hope that you will enjoy it. And we just have to say that there was so much to write about, we couldn't fit everything about Danny in. So we're going to leave our look at The Stallion That Mounts the World and The House of the Undying prophecies for a future prophecy episode. We just couldn't cram all those in, unfortunately. But anyway, let's get going with Daenerys Targaryen. A dragon is no slave.
3: Woman? Is that meant to insult me? I would return the slap if I took you for a man. I am Daenerys Stormborn of House Targaryen, the Unburnt, Mother of Dragons, Khaleesi to Drogo's riders, and Queen of the Seven Kingdoms of Westeros.
2: So to begin, we're going to look at Dany's first chapter in *The Game of Thrones* to get a grounding of her as a character and see what themes were laid out by the author. After an icy prologue and northern POVs from Bran and Catelyn, we're taken across the narrow sea to Essos. It's in Illyrio's manse that we first get to meet Daenerys Targaryen.
3: And we quickly get the sense of Dany's situation. Her brother's dressing her up and he seems to be ordering her quite firmly. Dany's humbled to see the dress and asks, is it mine? Hinting to her impoverished upbringing. She's forgotten what it's like to be a princess, which both underlines her status as a princess of some kind, and the reality that she's so poor she has to rely on others.
2: And Danny soon shows that she's no fool by inquiring why Illyrio is being so generous, saying that he must want something. This hints at her street smarts and skills at reading people. She might have gotten carried away with the dress and gems and feeling like a princess, as someone like Sansa could have, but instead we see realism and observational skills that serve her throughout her arc.
3: So we learn that Magister Lirio is a well-networked, unscrupulous, and self-serving man who's dealt not only in spices, but in things less savoury. This is all gleaned by Danny's attention to talk in the streets, and instills more caution in her than in her big brother Viserys. This is also the first hint that she might be about to become one of those things less savoury that Illyrio deals in, an allusion to the slave trade.
2: And with the sense that Viserys is slightly crazed and overpowering, the reader already has a grounding of a lost princess who, although born into great power, is utterly powerless in her situation and she seems to be at the mercy of two dubious male characters who, in different ways, instill fear into her. Given Danny is both smart enough to read what's happening and politely passive, this fear, as well as some sympathy, is passed on to the reader.
3: Yes, Viserys has a feverish look in his lilac eyes, and we learn that he often has fits of aggression aimed at Danny, which he calls Waking the Dragon. This phrase later takes on a different meaning, of course, and it's important now that it's repeated to her. For now, it represents the power Viserys has over her and the fear those words can create. As he dresses her, he twists her nipple while threatening her. We can really see that Viserys is abusive and the disempowerment that Danny must feel is one that shapes her through her future arc.
2: Yeah, and we'll be discussing how Danny moves from disempowerment to positions of power today. But it's in this early dressing scene that slaves are first mentioned. They are to bathe, Danny. And as Viserys tells her this, he also barks orders at her and tells her that the car will be looking for, quote, a different sort of mount. So it's clear that, in some way, Danny herself is a lot like a slave and she belongs to her brother's ambitions.
3: Yeah, and Viserys starts to show her affection while talking of what giving her over to a call will do for his power lust. It sounds like a complex but very damaging relationship the two have, from Danny's point of view. Well, what's clear is that she is a commodity, an object, and a means to an end, a pawn in the game. She has no power to change these frightening dynamics.
2: But next we see more themes introduced. First, that of a lost childhood. Danny hears ragged children on the streets playing. It says, For a moment she wished she could be out there with them, barefoot and breathless and dressed in tatters, with no past and no future and no feast to attend at Carl Drogo's manse.
3: And this highlights the fact that she's still half a child, We learn that she's bled and so is a woman in some sense, yet she's just 13 years old and wishes she could have a simple life, playing freely as the other children are. Being a princess in exile sounds like a position of privilege, but in reality, she has the worst of two worlds.
2: Right, she's poor and disempowered, yet highly valuable as a commodity. Next, the notion of home comes into play. We already know that Illyrio is housing the siblings, but has ulterior motives, and so the manse can be no true home for her. And we learn that Viserys' notion of home is Westeros, a place where he spent some time in his youth before their father was killed and their family usurped.
3: However, Danny fled Dragonstone soon after her birth and only has her brother's stories to go on. It says... She had never seen this land her brother said was theirs, this realm beyond the sea, these places he talked of, Casterly Rock and the Eyrie, Highgarden and the Vale of Arryn, Dorne and the Isle of Faces. They were just words to her.
2: Exactly. Danny does go on to desire a seat on the Iron Throne, yet it doesn't carry with it the true sense of home. We're talking about the place that you feel where you belonged and that a lost child might pine for. The home Danny seems to pine for is in Bravos, a house with a red door that she remembers from her early life. And we'll be talking about where that house might be soon. But for now, it's really a symbol. There seems to have been a time in her life where she felt safe and wanted before she and Viserys had to leave, beginning a life of poverty, begging and humiliation. This house with the red door represents home to Danny, just as Westeros represents home to Viserys.
3: And after some backstory, where we learn of the former power of Danny's house, and following on from the notion of home, we start to think about the associated theme of family. Danny's father had his throat opened by the Kingslayer, and it says her mother died birthing her, and for that, quote, her brother Viserys had never forgiven her. So, set against the strong sense of family we get from the early Stark chapters, Danny really seems to be alone.
2: Yes, yeah, she's an orphan, and there's been no adult figure to take care of her for a number of years. There's fond memories of Willem Darry, who seems to have been very good to her in the Red Door days, but she lost him too, when he died of illness. This loss is closely tied to her loss of home, And with her parents and Willem absent, and with Illyrio being no kind of father figure at all, all she now has of home and family is Viserys. But she thinks, yet now Viserys schemed to sell her to a stranger, a barbarian.
3: Okay, so again we arrive at slavery and human commodity, and by now Danny's dignified acceptance of her situation only heightens our sympathy for her. When we saw Danny being bathed by slaves, one of them mentioned that Drogo is so rich that even his slaves wear golden collars.
2: And later on, we learned that the collars are in fact bronze, but Danny believing they're gold is important. When being dressed, she is given a collar to wear, Quote, "a heavy golden torque emblazoned with ancient Valyrian glyphs."
3: Right and Danny remembers what the slave girl had said about Drogo making his slaves wear golden collars. Danny's response to this recollection is to feel a sudden chill and goose flesh pimpled her bare arms.
2: Yes, yeah, so this is perhaps the moment reality really hits, and the sudden chill says it all. We have so far seen slaves with Danny, bathing and dressing her, and she didn't really think much about that either way. Yet now she's actually contemplating being her slave herself, we really see the roots of her anti-slavery theme that grows and grows through her arc, becoming one of her defining beliefs and policies. Although Danny's experience with Drogo turned out to be more empowering than she'd anticipated, which we'll discuss, this time here, fearing Drogo, Illyrio and Viserys, lay the groundwork for her shackle-breaking, emancipation and freeing of so many people with whom she can now relate. Danny's empathy towards slaves is born from the experience of fear, disempowerment, abuse and hopelessness that the shackled masses of Essos feel.
3: And we see our first Unsullied, named an insolent eunuch by Illyrio. And it's interesting rereading this to think about the effect Danny has on the slave trade later on, attempting to stop the supply of Unsullied to people like Illyrio, the man who arranged her own sale.
2: And it's also interesting that Illyrio talks about Jura Mormont, a man exiled for trading slaves. Illyrio says of his crime, Some trifling affront... He sold some poachers to a Tyroshi slaver instead of giving them to the Night's Watch. Absurd law. A man should be able to do as he likes with his own chattel.
3: Notice the word chattel. This is a term for property that isn't real estate. It's linked to the word cattle. People are like cattle to the slavers, and perhaps most harrowingly for Daenerys, her brother, someone who should love and care for her, is willing to sell her off like cattle.
2: And it's curious that of the slavers Danny is now surrounded by, Jura has this dark backstory, which adds further intrigue when she opposes slavery later on. It's clear that in certain parts of Essos, there's a fine line between slaver and slave, remembering that Jura himself becomes a slave.
3: Okay, so as Danny's about to meet Drogo, we see how trapped she is and how she truly feels. It says... Danny wanted to run and hide, but her brother was looking at her, and if she displeased him, she knew she would wake the dragon. Anxiously, she turned and looked at the man Viserys hoped would ask to wed her before the night was done.
2: Yeah, and Viserys is also afraid, we learn. He is a nasty, selfish brother, but we do get a sense of a lost child wanting home. It's actually quite similar to Danny. Viserys is desperate and after trading in his mother's crown he has nothing left to sell apart from his own sister. When Danny observes Drogo, a huge and intimidating man, we get this passage.
3: Danny looked at Khal Drogo. His face was hard and cruel, his eyes as cold and dark as onyx. Her brother heard her sometimes when she woke the dragon, but he did not frighten her the way this man frightened her. I don't want to be his queen. "'she heard herself say in a small, thin voice, "'Please, please, Viserys, I don't want to. "'I want to go home.' "'Home!' he kept his voice low, "'but she could hear the fury in his tone. "'How are we to go home, sweet sister? "'They took our home from us.' "'He drew her into the shadows, out of sight, "'his fingers digging into her skin. "'How are we to go home?' he repeated, "'meaning King's Landing and Dragonstone "'and all the realm they had lost.' Danny had only meant their rooms in Illyrio's estate. No true home, surely, though all they had, but her brother did not want to hear that. There was no home there for him. Even the big house with the red door had not been home for him. His fingers dug hard into her arm, demanding an answer. I don't know, she said at last, her voice breaking. Tears welled in her eyes.
2: And then finally Viserys confesses that he's so desperate to get an army to restore the Targaryen legacy that he would let a whole khalasar and their horses fuck Daenerys. Trapped, frightened and lost, Danny obeys her brother's commands and stands up to greet the Karl, smiling.
3: So this is a very eventful first chapter for Danny. She comes across as a decent, normal and observant yet timid young girl whose privileged royal background has brought enormous expectation and burden to her. She carries the weight of a fallen empire on her shoulders, and with a bullying and aggressive brother as her only semblance of kin and home, surrounded by powerful men wanting to use her in different ways, this 13-year-old girl is in a terrible situation.
2: Yes, she really is. It's worth noting that perhaps more than any other character, Daenerys finds ways to turn around her own plight, manages to translate that into a force with which to initiate change. And next, we'll be delving deeper into Danny's story in A Game of Thrones, after this.
3: And for the first time in hours, she forgot to be afraid. Perhaps it was for the first time ever. A daring she had never known filled Daenerys then, and she gave the filly her head. The silver horse leapt the flames as if she had wings. The silver horse leapt the flames as if she had wings.
2: So, with Danny and her major themes having been introduced, let's next analyze her journey through A Game of Thrones, where we see her transform from commodity to mother of dragons. The early phases of what is a complex empowerment arc. And it's this arc that we're going to really focus on today. Okay, so leading up to Danny's wedding. Drogo calls his entire khalasar together, 40,000 warriors plus followers. Remembering that Danny has had no family besides her horrible brother, she's clearly about to enter a different world in this sense.
3: Yeah, huge change awaits her, and quite understandably she doesn't anticipate any potential benefits of marrying into such a large family, if you can call it that, at this stage. The Kalasar must have been terrifying with its size, strange customs, and the creation of so much fear to the Pentoshi locals that they doubled their city guard.
2: And add to these anxieties Danny feels, the continual intimidation from her brother with his willingness to trade her. Speaking of Viserys, he's already sowing seeds of his own downfall with his impatience and cultural insensitivity. Here's a passage. The Kala's promised you a crown and you shall have it, says Illyrio. Yes, but when, replies Viserys impatiently. And then Jura says soon after that, The Dothraki are true to their word, but they do things in their own time.
3: And as we know, the Dothraki were true to their word, and with Viserys' imperious attitude and saying things like, I piss on Dothraki omens, not only do we get the sense that he's pretty stupid, but that Daenerys, as a quiet and thoughtful observer, will surely get along with Jorah and the Dothraki much better than he will.
2: Yeah, things already don't look great for Viserys. And then the beggar king proclaims, the dragon never begs, which is quite laughable. And then we see Danny's first dragon dream. Viserys is hurting her, and this is a nightmare full of fear, mirroring her real life. He screams, you woke the dragon, several times. Then she bleeds down her thigh, and there's a ripping sound and the cracking of a great fire. Viserys disappears, replaced by a dragon with molten eyes.
3: Okay, so dragon dreams can have prophetic qualities, and there's obvious shades of the dragon birth here, as well as her brother's death. But this woke the dragon line is touching something in Danny's psyche early on. She wakes in terror, this theme of fear being played with again. If Danny wants to initiate change, she must overcome the crippling fear that's frequently mentioned.
2: And Danny awakes to her wedding day. Again, we get more of this fear. The Dothraki seem, quote, strange and frightening. And at the feast, she's surrounded by harsh and alien voices. She's lonely and isolated, as she has been her whole life, really. Drogo is ignoring her, and it says, there was no one to talk to.
3: However, now we get the first hint of a hidden strength in Danny, a resilience beneath the timidness. Too afraid to even eat, her internal monologue says... I am blood of the dragon, I am Daenerys Stormborn, princess of Dragonstone, of the blood and seed of Aegon the Conqueror.
2: Yes, yeah, so we start to wonder if Dany does actually have some metal now. And notice she internally draws upon her proud heritage to give her strength, something Viserys does externally and often to his detriment. But after witnessing death and animalistic sex during the wedding feast... Again we see her fear. Right, never
3: a dull affair, those Dothraki weddings. (laughs) And now, she's seen the savage nature of the Dothraki. It says terror grew in her. She's afraid of the alien and monstrous Dothraki, afraid of failing Viserys, and most of all, afraid of consummating the marriage. She must be wondering if she's a sex slave at this point. Again, she finds strength by reminding herself of her dragon heritage.
2: However, just as it seems like the fear was getting too much for Danny, from out of nowhere, there's some pleasantness. And the first glimpse that her relationship with the Dothraki has the capacity to turn into something positive. Wedding gifts.
3: Yeah, and there's no cutlery sets or coffee makers here. She gets three handmaidens, highly significant remembering the male-dominated world that she's found herself in, and then there's the Westerosi books from Jorah, and Illyrio hands over three dragon eggs. Danny's very impressed. They're the most beautiful things she's ever seen. But she knows in reality her sale to the Dothraki was facilitated by an exchange of slaves, and that Illyrio can well afford this gift.
2: Yes, so again we see how Danny can be quite astute. And whilst the dragon's eggs might be the most significant gift long term... It's Drogo's gift which most affects Danny here. A beautiful silver horse which took her breath away and which Drogo says matches the silver of her hair. A little hint that he's capable of being more than just a monstrous brute. After noting that the horse is special, Danny nervously mounts her silver and it says, For the first time in hours, she forgot to be afraid.
3: Yeah, so her silver represents autonomy, freedom. And as she rides, she has control of her own destiny for a while. Something she must have truly craved after being with Viserys and being treated like a slave. Her fear is now under control. And while it's Drogo who gifted her the horse, it's Danny herself at the reins.
2: And she makes a silver jump over a fire pit, showing a spontaneous and daring side to her we wouldn't have guessed at. Something that we'll see again at crucial times from Danny. As it jumps, we're told it was as if the horse had wings, a nice nod to her mounting of Drogon later on, over a very different kind of pit.
3: And so when Danny and Drogo consummate their marriage, thankfully it's not as terrifying as she'd anticipated. Again, he shows a tender side as she becomes aroused and says, Yes. But notice so far how Danny has this pendulum going on. She gets bouts of fear, which she then overcomes.
2: Yeah, it's like a roller coaster that continues right through her arc. It's like a pendulum of empowerment that swings back and forth. And talking of empowerment, we see this theme grow as the Kalasar enters the Dothraki Sea, a huge expanse of grassland the openness of the surroundings. Where is the newfound sense of freedom we get from Danny,
3: And we learn of her initial discomfort in the saddle and, in spite of the apparent tenderness of their first night together, some disturbing sexual encounters with Drogo. But later we see her growing in confidence. She's starting to enjoy herself, even her sex life. It says she began to find pleasure even in her nights. And this surge in confidence, we learn, was triggered by her second dragon dream. A dragon covered her in fire, cleansed her. There was no fear. And it says, she felt strong and new and fierce.
2: Yeah, and every day after that dream, it was easier. Even her handmaidens noticed the change in her. The dragon dream directly helped her, remembering that she's now got those eggs. So there's something going on with dragons and Danny's personality here and this dream catalyzes her empowerment.
3: However, Viserys is still being a brat and we get the sense that if Danny wants to obtain further freedom, she'll have to transcend his grasp. Viserys now stands in contrast to her. He's struggling with this way of life and isn't smart enough to comprehend the benefits that integrating into the khalasar might bring. Danny tries not to let Viserys spoil the serenity of the Dothraki Sea.
2: Yeah, he's like the fly in her ointment at this stage. And we start to see that he might need her more than she needs him. She's empowering herself by adapting to her surroundings, assimilating and enjoying the journey. Viserys doesn't do any of this, which comes to a head when he aggressively confronts her. She shoves him, Notably, the first time she's ever defied him, apparently. And then we get a crack of Jogo's whip.
3: And as Viserys lies on the ground, Danny thinks he was a pitiful thing. He had always been a pitiful thing. Why had she never seen that before? There was a hollow place inside her where her fear had been.
2: Yeah, that fear of hers has gone. She is growing as a person. The power pendulum between the siblings has truly swung and Danny orders her brother, the man who has owned and sold her, to walk behind the khalasar. And she seeks further empowerment in her sex life too, now using her sexuality and femininity. She tells Drogo to have sex face to face rather than from behind. So in her own way, begins to challenge Dothraki traditions and asserts herself. Soon after, we learn of her pregnancy.
3: Yes, a game-changing moment for Danny, with Drogo's child growing inside her. This immediately affects the dynamics even further. First of all, it makes Danny more vulnerable and gives cause to protect herself against Viserys. He soon grabs her arm and says, You forget yourself, slut. Do you think that big belly will protect you if you wake the dragon?
2: (laughs) Bad move, Viserys. And thematically, Danny's sense of family is now growing. She's fitting in with the Dothraki, has her handmaidens for female companions, her cars protecting her, and a Carl husband. In the short space of time, she's really come a long way. Ironically, as the brother's influence subsides, her sense of family and belonging has actually increased. Danny finding family in strangers is something that comes up through her arc, but now she has a child inside her. Her bonds to the Dothraki Khalasar are really strengthened, and she can look ahead to the family life she was denied in her own childhood.
3: And once again, we're reminded of the role the dragon's eggs play. She holds them, and it says they were so beautiful, and sometimes just being close to them made her feel stronger, braver, as if somehow she were drawing strength from the stone dragons locked inside. She was lying there, holding the egg, when she felt the child move inside her, as if he were reaching out, brother to brother, blood to blood. You are the dragon, Danny whispered to him, the true dragon. I know it. I know it.
2: Okay, and next we see Danny trying to eat that stallion's heart, which has been cut out using stone knives because standard blades aren't permitted in Vase Dothrak. This ceremony not only echoes real world sacred meal rituals from pagan sacrifices to Christian Eucharist, but further highlights Danny's integration into Dothraki culture. And if she can finish it, the horse mad dothraki think that it's going to strengthen the child.
3: And so Danny does very well to eat the heart, and afterwards, an old crone makes the stallion that mounts the world prophecy, and Danny names the child Rago. Danny is now an accepted and very important member of the dothraki. Devouring the heart was a powerful moment and highlights her increased inner strength and outward power. However, there's further indication that Viserys is headed in the opposite direction.
2: Yeah, her brother goes to drink wine, with mentions of another petulant display, attacking a blood pie this time. Is that wise? Danny asks Jura. And the reader suspects that it's most certainly not. Jura also mentions he stopped Viserys stealing the dragon's eggs. The Beggar King is becoming more and more isolated.
3: And then when Viserys rolls up drunk and insulting his whore sister, she understands what his drawn sword will mean and that he's too culturally ignorant to see it. Although Danny has often despised and feared Viserys so far, she's also sympathized with and shown pity for him. This shows her capacity for empathy, which is a large part of who she is. However, when Viserys points the blade at her belly, we see this empathy vanish.
2: Yeah, it says Viserys was weeping, she saw, weeping and laughing, both at the same time. This man who had once been her brother. So, Viserys has actually lost his name to Danny now, and he's done something irreversible, unforgivable, and now we see how hard Danny can be.
3: Yeah. Kotho seizes Viserys, and she refuses to look away as he's crowned in molten gold. So Viserys is gone, who was so desperate for power that he sold his own sister. It's worth skipping to a quote in Storm to really appreciate how their relationship affects her later arc. It says, I was alone for a long time, Jora, all alone but for my brother. I was such a small, scared thing. Viserys should have protected me. But instead, he hurt me and scared me worse. He shouldn't have done that. He wasn't just my brother, he was my king. Why do the gods make kings and queens if not to protect the ones who can't protect themselves?
2: Mm, We can see that Viserys' treatment of her was one of her main inspirations to conquer and rule, it seems. Now with Viserys gone, that fly in her ointment, she's finally rid of the fear he brought to her. Dynamics have changed dramatically, and with the prophecy in her mind, that the stallion will ride to the ends of the earth, Danny starts to crave Westeros. She realises her own importance as the last living Targaryen, carrying the family line in her belly. It says, "'In her womb grew a son,' who would one day bestride the world. That should be enough for any woman, but not for the dragon. With Viserys gone, Daenerys was the last, the very last. She was the seed of kings and conquerors, and so too the child inside her. She must not forget.
3: And we soon see her desperation, reminiscent of Viserys's, as she begins to talk Drogo into a honeymoon in Westeros. She tells Jorah, but he must ride west. Please, help me make him understand. So this theme of home is arising again, and as Jora promises that's where they'll go, she thinks home? The word made her feel sad. Sir Jora had his bare island. But what was home to her? A few tales, names recited as solemnly as the words of a prayer, the fading memory of a red door. Was Ves to be her home forever? When she looked at the crones of the Dosh Kaleen, was she looking into her future?
2: So, we've seen Danny integrate into the Dothraki, seen her empower herself in doing so, but here's a reminder she's still her own person and will never be a true Dothraki. She has ambitions that are growing wide now, and she doesn't want to spend a future retirement with the Dosh Kaleen. She is a dragon, and conquering and power are what made House Targaryen what it was.
3: And Danny's Westerosi ambitions take an unexpected turn. After a wine cellar tries to kill her and Rago, Drogo is not happy to hear the news that Robert Baratheon wants his wife and son dead. He swears before the Mother of Mountains to ride wooden horses
2: to Westeros like no other Cal has done. Yeah, again, we're seeing Danny's level of power take steps back and forward. And now she's really in a great place with regard to her Westerosi ambitions. It's worth mentioning that whilst waiting for Drogo, Danny decided to experiment with the eggs, putting them on a brazier. She wonders if it was madness doing so, or some strange wisdom buried in her blood. Although the experiment fails... Danny is now proactively trying to hatch the dragons, and it seems that some strange force or compulsion might be playing a role.
3: Yes, it does. And so far, Danny has seen and been gifted with slaves, even been sold off like a slave, but has not really connected the two in a way that shows hatred for slavery. This all changes when she witnesses the aftermath of her Kalisar's battle against another Kalisar and the lazarene. About the lamb men, it says, Danny pitied them. She remembered what terror felt like.
2: Yeah, Danny's been there herself. And then we have this passage. She wondered what the lamb men had thought when they first saw the dust of their horses from atop those crack mud walls. Perhaps a few... The younger and more foolish who still believed that the gods heard the prayers of the desperate men took it for deliverance. So Danny is really beginning to empathise with the Lazarene, who are now going to be slaves and she tries to take on their point of view. Not only is this triggering her anti-slavery stance something so central to her later on but it's really showing her capacity to empathise with people, even those she knows little about. And it's all rooted in her having experienced similar trauma and fears.
3: And then Jora tells her there are 10,000 captives and equates the slaves with ships for her invasion. She can see for herself that people fall into slavery, but soon the full horror of the price of her ambitions hits her. She wanted to cry, but she told herself that she must be strong. This is war. This is what it looks like. This is the price of the Iron Throne.
2: Yeah, some of Danny's realism creeping in there. And while this conversation is happening, she can hear the screams of a girl no older than herself called Eroa. And she's being raped over a pile of corpses. This is a real dilemma for Danny: Selling people into slavery is not only her ticket to Westeros, but part of her khalasar's culture. Again and again, Danny will have to make decisions surrounding this issue. And now we see her take on the reins, both literally and figuratively.
3: Yeah, she clenches her silver's reins as she commands Jorah to make them stop. So Danny's being very brave here. Jorah and the Dothraki are perplexed, but she uses her position as Drogo's wife to stop the rape. And this is the Drogo that talks about rape as if it's a triumph. On one hand, she's willing to challenge traditions and initiate unthinkable change. Yet she's still embracing the power of the Kallisar. It's clear she wants to do the right thing, but she also wants to have her cake and eat it too. George never makes it easy for his characters to do this, and the complexities we see when she tries to cause change here follow her whenever she tries to exert a positive influence throughout her arc.
2: Yeah, there always seems like there's a price to pay. And this time the complexities come courtesy of Mary Mazdur. Mary thanks Danny as she's spared, but her involvement from now until the end of her life challenges Ned's remarks that mercy is never a mistake.
3: Hmm, so, Drogo has an arrow in him, a wide cut, and a missing nipple. Danny sees that he needs treatment, and Mary offers to help as a God's wife healer. Danny goes against the Dothraki, and the Kal listens to her. Again, we're seeing that spontaneous and intuitive side to Danny in showing trust in Mary, and perhaps some naivete, too. Danny is convinced the woman is so indebted to her that she'll do no harm to the Kal who's just destroyed her village.
2: Mm, and after Drogo is patched up, We next see him riding uncomfortably on his mount, surrounded by blood flies. And we're told these flies target the dead and the dying. Drogo is in such a bad way, he can't even fight off the flies. His wound has festered. Miri treated him with a poultice, giving strict instructions not to take it off and not to drink milk of the poppy or wine. Carl Drogo has both taken off the poultice and proceeded to drink poppy wine.
3: And the reader can't be sure if there was something up with the poultice, or if Drogo has brought about his own downfall by removing it. We think the poultice was fine, but she might have administered it knowing full well he'd take it off and doom himself, given his attitude toward medical treatment. Remember he said, "'I spit on pain and drink what I like.'" We also think she knew he should have been treated by knife and fire, as his riders suggested. As she even says later, there's great healing magic in fire. In this way, perhaps she helped to take down Drogo whilst upholding her ideal of treating anyone in need.
2: And when a soft touch from Danny sends Drogo falling off his horse, we realise how much trouble they're both in. A Carl who can't ride is no Carl. And Drogo is dying. Without her call, she is nothing, and could have Rago torn from her body. Her best shall end up with the crones in Vase Dothrak. We see the old fear come back to Danny, and she starts trembling.
3: Yeah, Danny has empowered herself. Yet it's all come via Drogo. It says Drogo had been more than her son and stars. He had been the shield that kept her safe. So, she's up the ladder, and then all of a sudden, she's sliding right down again. There's often such a fine and fragile line between peace and chaos for Danny. Once more, her sense of fear is directly linked to disempowerment, and so fuels her desire for power through the story.
2: Yeah, having been on such a high with the Dothraki recently, Danny is turned upside down, and fearing for herself, her son, and her husband, she calls for Miri again quite a desperate move and thinks she had finally found a safe place, had finally tasted love and hope. she was finally going home. And now to lose it all. So yeah we can actually see how desperate she is there.
3: And it's Danny who suggests magic to Mary. Magic is playing an increasing role in her arc. Mary warns her that only death may pay for life. Perhaps another example of Miri being truthful and letting Danny make her own decision whilst withholding certain information. She even lays out the rules that no one may enter the tent.
2: And so Drogo's stallion is slain. Danny wonders if this is the cost of blood magic. And Miri sings her spells. But the Dothraki forbid blood magic and so fighting ensues and after a shove... Danny's labour begins prematurely. Jorah takes her into the tent because he needs a midwife, and so Danny enters a tent she was ordered to stay clear of. And now we see another dragon dream.
3: Yeah, and this time it's a fever dream. She sees the red door and she walks towards it. She sees Drogo, Viserys, Rhaegar, and Jorah tells her Rhaegar was the last dragon. She then seems to see Targaryen ancestors telling her to run toward the door, faster. It's then that a great knife of pain ripped down her back and she felt her skin tear open.
2: So, pain down her back and her skin tearing open. It seems to us that Danny's actually growing wings here, perhaps turning into a dragon or a harpy, because we later see that she flies. Humans becoming dragons is a popular fantasy trope, and some sphinxes in Essos are half-human, half-dragon, and there's also the harpy statues that are also somewhat similar. With all the hints at a deeper connection between Targaryens and dragons, from the malformed babies to the repetition of the phrase, blood of the dragon, it's clear this human stroke dragon theme is one George likes to explore in different ways.
3: Anyway, when she reaches the red door, which is identified as home, behind it is Rhaegar in armor. Jora whispers, The Last Dragon. But when she opens the visor, it's actually Daenerys. So we interpret that as Danny realizing that Rhaegar isn't the Last Dragon, as Jora says. The Last Dragon is, in fact, Her, behind the visor of the last dragon, is her own face.
2: And that's the dream. But we should mention that as it's unfolding, the sentence, You don't want to wake the dragon, do you? is repeated eight times. This is a threatening line from Berseris that's been swimming around her subconscious since very early on. In this fever dream, it begins to change when it's repeated. It starts off as, you don't want to wake the dragon, do you? And it ends up being, wake the dragon, and finally the dragon. As she realizes the last dragon is herself and not Rhaegar.
3: So, Danny has some deep connection with those dragon eggs. And as we soon see, that connection is wondrous, magical, something perhaps beyond words. Her fever dream was so powerful the first thing Danny cares for upon waking is those eggs. It says they were the only thing in the world that mattered, and she crawls for the eggs before thinking of Reiko and Drogo.:
2: And when she wakes for the third time, she's actually cradling an egg. She thinks all her fear was gone, burned away. So once again, the eggs give Danny a strange strength. And help her overcome tremendous fear. She seems to have bonded with these eggs somehow. And now that she's lost almost everything, they're perhaps all she's got left.
3: Yeah, and that bond only grows. Miri tells her she gave birth to a dead, dragon-esque baby. And Danny thinks, darkness, the terrible darkness sweeping up behind to devour her. If she looked back, she was lost. The darkness, of course, is the fear that's plagued her. And the line, if I look back, I am lost, is used here to strengthen herself and remind herself of the fear that she no longer wants to succumb to. The root of this motif comes from the fever dream, as she wasn't allowed to look back while chasing the red door. In the dream, it said, she could not look behind her, must not look behind her.
2: Yeah, so that's where this line, if I look back, I am lost, is rooted in. It's the fever dream and so Danny realises the fear of her situation could swallow her and she must not succumb to or dwell upon it if she wants to survive. And this line is repeated right through her arc to overcome fear at various times. But now it's the dragon eggs that are her new hope.
3: Yeah, and she starts to feel heat in them. We can sense something's happened in her subconscious, that she's tapped into some greater knowledge somehow. And soon enough, we see a funeral pyre being made for Drogo and his horse. She's sadly had to suffocate her sun and stars when she realized that Miri's spell had not had the expected outcome, in spite of the great sacrifice it required. Miri is placed within, as are the eggs. Danny knows what she's going to do, She's acting largely out of impulse and intuition, although she does feel that Miri has taught her the rudiments of blood magic.
2: And Georges call this next scene a one-off miracle. Danny joins the horse, Miri, Drogo, and the eggs in the pyre, and when the dust has settled, she's revealed unharmed and with three baby dragons. A really fantastic climax to A Game of Thrones, and we'll have a reading of that scene soon.
3: And the actual pyre itself brings up numerous questions. Are the eggs ancient and turned to stone, as Illyrio says, or are dragon's eggs always stone in their natural state? Based on analysis of all dragon egg descriptions, we think it might be the latter, which would make sense because they'd have to withstand great heat. Further, are the eggs not ancient, but actually from a more recent clutch? If so, how did Illyrio obtain them? And did Danny bonding with the eggs make them hatchable? Did the souls of Drogo, Rago, and Viserys enter the eggs, remembering Viserion with his molten gold eyes, if that's a hint?
2: Hmm, so questions about the pyre, the eggs, and the truth about Illyrio... But there's even more questions. Were Miri's screams on the pyre actually a spell? This is something that readers have picked up on. It says her voice was ululating. And this word is used three times in game. Once when Danny hears spell singers at the Easter market. Once when Miri performs her spell in the tent. And once here on the pyre, yulating, and we think we'll learn a lot more about Miri and her backstory when Danny meets Marwin, who taught Miri the secrets of the body.
3: So, lots of questions remain about the pyre and the dragons. We don't have time to explore them further here. But, once again, we see this pendulum of power swinging for Dany. She went from being secure in Drogo's khalasar, to losing everything, to being the mother of dragons now with a devout following, potentially the most powerful woman in the world with those three dragons.
2: And this was all in a very short space of time. So we can see in game how Dany rose from being a commodity, basically a slave, to ending up pulling off a miracle and once again empowering herself. And the dragon's eggs were a huge part of that. There was a kind of magical connection there and now her sense of family has changed once again. The birth of a dragons was a real game changer and one that facilitated a further rise to first conqueror and then ruler, as we'll be exploring today. But, before we go on, it's time for that reading we promised. Here's Daenerys Targaryen on the pyre.
3: She heard the screams of frightened horses, and the voices of the Dothraki raised in shouts of fear and terror, and Sir Jorah calling her name and cursing. No, she wanted to shout to him, no, my good knight, do not fear for me, the fire is mine. I am Daenerys Stormborn, daughter of dragons, bride of dragons, mother of dragons. Don't you see? Don't you see? With a belch of flame and smoke that reached thirty feet into the sky, the pyre collapsed and came down around her. Unafraid, Dany stepped forward into the firestorm, calling to her children. The third crack was as loud and sharp as the breaking of the world. When the fire died at last and the ground became cool enough to walk upon, Sir Jora Mormont found her amidst the ashes, surrounded by blackened logs and bits of glowing ember and the burnt bones of man and woman and stallion. She was naked, covered with soot, her clothes turned to ash, her beautiful hair all crisped away, yet she was unhurt. The cream and gold dragon was suckling at her left breast, the green and bronze at the right. Her arms cradled them close. The black and scarlet beast was draped across her shoulders, its long, sinuous neck coiled under her chin. When it saw Jora, it raised its head and looked at him with eyes as red as coals. Wordless, the knight fell to his knees. The men of her Kaz came up behind him. Jogo was the first to lay his Iraq at her feet. Blood of my blood, he murmured, pushing his face to the smoking earth. "'Blood of my blood!' she heard Ago echo. "'Blood of my blood!' Ricaro shouted. "'And after them came her handmaids, and then the others, "'all the Dothraki, men and women and children, "'and Danny had only to look at their eyes to know "'that they were hers now, today and tomorrow and forever, "'hers as they had never been Drogos.' "'As Daenerys Targaryen rose to her feet, "'her black hissed, pale smoke venting from its mouth and nostrils.' The other two pulled away from her breasts and added their voices to the call, translucent wings unfolding and stirring the air. And for the first time in hundreds of years, the night came alive with the music of
1: dragons.
2: So that was how a Game of Thrones ends. Really dramatic and magical scene there. And now it's time for some theorizing and that house with the red door in Braavos.
3: So throughout the books, Dany thinks of one place she was truly happy and is identified as her notion of home. This is a big house with a red door in Braavos. And there's been much discussion about where this house actually is And we think it's time to take a look at that.
2: Yeah, and it's a couple of years ago now, I posted a thread at westeros.org that seemed to pick up on an apparent anomaly. And this launched a thousand crackpots about the house with the red door. And I saw that on one hand, there was a lemon tree outside this house in Bravos, But on the other hand, there seemed to be no trees in Bravos. So what's the deal? And in the thread, someone mentioned they had the observation first. So a shout to the others take you for getting there first. But anyway, I'd noticed this one too. And I'd been thinking about this lemon tree mystery for a good while. I'd wondered if it meant Danny had a dodgy memory. Or if the house wasn't actually in Bravos, And there was a really raging debate there. And fast forward a while later... And a YouTuber showed up in the thread and then he took the idea to YouTube, where again it got well known and tinfoil production increased dramatically. There's many weird and wonderful conclusions people have come to about this lemon tree and house with the red door.
3: Yes, there are. Anyway, we think that posters in Yolk Boy's original thread came up with a decent solution very early on, so let's take a look at the mystery and the evidence. Okay, so it's in Feast where we learn that there's a problem with trees in Bravos. They grow on the outlying islands, but not on Bravos itself. Here are some quotes. First, from Arya, we get, "They have no trees." She realized. Bravos is all stone, a grey city in a green sea. And then, from Sam's point of view, that was Bravos, devoid of grass and trees. And later, Gilly tells Sam In the forest they see all, but there are no trees here. And finally, again from Sam's point of view, trees did not grow on Bravos save in the courts and gardens of the mighty.
2: Yeah, so we can see the anomaly here. There seems to be no trees in Bravos, yet Danny remembers a lemon tree there. However, let's look at the last one of those quotes again. Trees did not grow on Bravos, save in the courts and gardens of the mighty. So, to put it another way, there are actually trees in Bravos, but only in the gardens of the Mighty.
3: And as we learned in the Mercy chapter, the Mighty are what the Bravosi call their elite class, people with money and power to do more or less as they please. So it was suggested by posters in the thread that the Sea Lord is the mightiest person in Bravos, and so the Sea Lord's palace, or somewhere close, should be a contender for the House with the Red Door.
2: And we think that the sea lord's palace and grounds makes a lot of sense. One of the first things we're ever told about a sea lord is that he's very rich and has a taste for exotic things. This is with Sirio, who notes the sea lord he served had a menagerie with zebras, giraffes, hippos, manticores, kangaroos and terrible walking lizards with scythes for claws.
3: Yeah, we think that's probably some kind of exotic creature from a place like Sothorios. But you get the idea. Siriof's sea lord had a very exotic zoo, and in a place where there's supposed to be no grass or trees, he maintains these animals. Some of them are vegetarian. A taste for the exotic with the means, riches, personnel, and power to keep them.
2: And in the house of the undying, we see at the red door house... Quote, great wooden beams and the carved animal faces that adorn them. So, animal carvings in a place with a menagerie would make a lot of sense. And it just so happens that Danny and Viserys were already part of A.C. Lord's scheming.
3: We learn in dance that a secret marriage pact was signed to match Ariane Martell with Viserys. Here's the passage. It's a secret pact, Danny said, made in Bravos when I was just a little girl. Sir Willem Darry signed for us, the man who spirited my brother and myself away from Dragonstone before the usurper's men could take us. Prince Oberyn Martell signed for Dorne, with the Sea Lord of Bravos as witness. So, it seems Oberyn signed this while in exile, but more interestingly, it was signed by the Sea Lord of Bravos." And doesn't it make sense that the Sea Lord was harboring and hiding the Targaryen children? He signed the marriage pact, so he was already involved in taking big risks. And when Danny gets the marriage pact, she thinks this was done in Braavos while we were living in the house with the red door.
2: Yes, so whether Danny suspects this or not, this pact could have been signed actually at the house with the red door, somewhere in or around the Sea Lord's palace. You'd think a marriage pact of an exiled prince might be signed where the prince was staying. They'd at least have to know where the prince was. And anyway, one day I was thinking about all the ways this Sea Lord idea fits with the Red Door. So I opened up the Bravos map in the official world map book. Pause this and take a look at it if you have that official map book, or else I'll describe Bravos. It has a ring of uninhabited green islands around. However, Bravos itself is grey all over. You can see it's exactly how it's described. There's always no greenery or trees. But crucially, the Sea Lord's Palace has huge green gardens. And buildings and animal cages. And most of all, it has an abundance of trees and bushes. The only place in Bravos with trees that I can see. This back garden is hidden away and would be the perfect place for harbouring wanted people. It's a kind of island in itself. And again, there are trees in Bravos, just ask the Sea Lord.
3: So I think Danny remembers perfume smells, and perfume is obviously worn by rich people. And we have the animal carvings and the menagerie, the marriage pact connection, and also the map book, given a huge, enormous, secluded garden with grass and lots of trees. But what about that troublesome lemon tree?
2: Well, the solution for this apparent anomaly could in fact be very simple, after the thousand Lemonati tinfoil crackpots about this. It's clearly stated several times that lemons are grown in dawn, perhaps exclusively so in universe. Here's an example from Shana in the Riverlands when Angai asked for lemons. Lemons? And where would we get lemons? Does this look like dawn to you?
3: So if the Sea Lord's signing a secret marriage pact, and he has ridiculously exotic gardens and money enough to keep and feed hippos and giraffes and so on... What could be sent from Dorne as an exotic gift and a symbol of alliance and solidarity? We think a lemon tree would be perfect.
2: Yeah, we do. And okay, so Danny sees a lemon tree as a symbol of innocence, but perhaps it might have represented some serious politics and scheming. And to the mentions of there being no trees in Bravos, this can be simply explained by the limitations of the POV chapters.
3: Yeah, exactly. They haven't seen any lemons or trees, but the Sea Lord's garden does have trees hidden away, as shown in the map and stated in that quote. Like we said, trees did not grow on Bravos, save in the courts and gardens of the mighty. So rather than being a clue that Danny's memories were of a different place, we think that the posters in Yokeboy's thread might have nailed it. The lemon tree really narrows down where in Bravos Danny actually lived. The lemon tree is a device to lead us to the one place in Bravos it could have been, and all signs point to the mighty sea lord's palace, and there do seem to be buildings out back in his menagerie on that map. The quotes about there being no trees or citrus come from characters who've obviously not seen the gardens of the mighty.
2: Also, Doran has a great motive to keep the usurped children in exile. Regarding the letter about the marriage pact, Barristan says, If Robert had known of this, he would have smashed Sunspear as he once smashed Pike and claimed the heads of Prince Doran and the Red Viper, and like as not, the head of his Dornish princess, too.
3: Yeah, so he wouldn't have risked keeping Danny and Viserys and Dorn. One word, and Robert could have had Arianne's head. Okay, so then the red door is shut on the siblings. Danny remembers it as being a simple life, but a safe one. And then they're thrown out and left to fend for themselves.
2: Well, it says after Sir William had died, the servants had stole what little money they had left, and soon after they had been put out of the big house. So, despite Danny thinking this is a simple life, the servants again point to a rich house. This simple life might have been, in fact, quite blessed. So then Sir Willem dies, but perhaps the sea lord did too. And we know when a sea lord dies, there's fighting, and eventually you do get a new sea lord, and a new first sword is chosen too. So if Sir Willem and then the sea lord both died, we can see why Danny and Viserys would have to leave. Because a new sea lord means a new regime.
3: Yeah, this would explain why the Red Door was shut for good. And one very interesting possibility in all this is that perhaps Danny and Serio met. Maybe he helped the children find safe passage if the Sea Lord did indeed die, similar to what he did with Arya in her escape from King's Landing. If he was first sword at that time, he would have had to leave too, as his tenure would end upon the Sea Lord's death.
2: Yes, so some interesting possibilities. And anyway, that's where we think the house with the red door was. And we don't think it's unlikely that the man who oversaw the Targaryen marriage pact was also harbouring the said Targaryen.
3: Okay, and next we'll be analysing Danny as a conqueror. But first, here's two advertisements. One from Astapor and the second from another A Song of Ice and Fire podcast. (laughs)
2: The Godmasters of Astapor invite you to visit our Red Pyramid. We offer for sale the famous Unsullied Warrior. Their rigorous training is designed so that no duty required of them will ever be as hard. They are the lockstep legions of Ordgis, come again, absolutely obedient, absolutely loyal, and utterly without fear our visitors can see three young boys confront a hungry bear. One boy is rolled in honey, one in blood and one in rotting fish. You are encouraged to wager on which the bear will eat first. Enjoy the wonders of our beautiful red city where speaking high valyrian is definitely not required. Hi, I'm Aziz.
4: And I'm Ashea. We're History of Westeros, a podcast dedicated to George R.R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire, as well as HBO's Game of Thrones.
0: That's right. We cover the show, the spoiler chapters, the novellas, the maps.
4: But our specialty is the history and backstory.
0: Quite often, the history of A Song of Ice and Fire predicts its future, so by looking at the past, we can often tell what's coming.
4: Hey, Aziz, you know the young king who rode south at the head of a large army who never lost a battle and made several political blunders? He didn't leave an heir of his body and was murdered alongside some of his staunchest companions in an act of treachery that offended gods and man alike.
0: Oh, well, Robb Stark, the young wolf, of course.
4: Not the young wolf, the young dragon, King the First. Oh,
0: wow. Ashea, you know that guy from the major family that some characters think slept with his sister, which caused people to question the legitimacy of the king and led to civil war? The one who was a teenager when he joined the King's Guard and rose to become Lord Commander. The one whose mother died when he was really young. The one whose father was a hard man that became Hand of the King at a really young age.
4: Obviously, you're talking about Jaime Lannister.
0: No, actually. Prince Aemon the Dragon Knight. Just as the young dragon's fate parallels the young wolves, the Dragon Knight's fate may parallel Jamie's.
4: To hear more about the fate of the Dragon Knight or Jamie Lannister. Or
0: young wolves, dragons, and animals of all ages.
4: Look for Westeros History on YouTube.
0: History of Westeros on iTunes or SoundCloud.
4: And HistoryofWesteros.com.
3: So an advert from Astapor, and then that was History of Westeros Podcast with a great advertisement of their own. History of Westeros are an excellent podcast, many of you may know them, but if you haven't checked them out, we really recommend doing so.
2: Yeah, and we were guests on their video and podcast episodes for the Game of Thrones Season 5 reviews, so you can see our podcasts working together if you want to check those out. Aziz and Asher are very professional and good friends of ours too. It's worth mentioning if you check them out a long time ago, they are now much improved in every way, so it might be time to revisit.
3: So, thanks to History of Westeros for the advert. And now moving on, let's discuss Danny the Conqueror. After being amidst battle on the Dothraki Sea, Danny gets perhaps her first taste of conquering in The House of the Undying when Drogon unleashes his flame to save her. Later, Jaequi attaches a Dothraki victory bell to her hair, and despite being smart enough to accept the honour, Danny notes, I have won no victories.
2: Yeah, this was Drogon's doing, yet Danny at least has both a taste of victory and witnesses first hand the power of Dragonflame. In this sense, the destruction of the Undying was a coming of age for both Danny and Drogon.
3: And this lays down the foundations for Dany to become a conqueror. Now, conquering is something closely tied to her family and lineage, dating back to Aegon the Conqueror, who united Westeros, made himself king of the Seven Kingdoms, and had the Iron Throne built of the Swords of the Defeated, all possible because of Dragonflame. He was essentially a foreigner in a land with no dragons, so there are points of comparison, especially when considering that Danny might one day invade Westeros with three dragons herself.
2: However, it was in Astapor that Danny really started conquering. So let's assess her motives, strategies and abilities as a conqueror as Danny turns Slaver's Bay upside down. Okay, so it's Jorah who actually talks Danny into the trip to Slaver's Bay, telling the story of Kohor and the Unsullied. At this point, Danny is not keen on the slave trade. It says, Danny was not certain she liked the sound of that at all. Everything she'd heard of the flesh marts in the great slave cities of Yunkai, Marine, and Astapor was dire and frightening.
3: But still, she isn't fiercely anti slavery. She's being advised by Jora, a convicted slaver, and she's excited by the idea of buying Unsullied with Illyrio's trade items. So she's wary of slavery, but remember, she's been around slaves with the Dothraki, and at this point, she's not thinking of herself as a liberator. However, her relationship with slavery is already complex. It's not black and white. And remember, she tried to, in some way at least, liberate those Lazarene women.
2: Exactly. And she also liberated people from the khalasar before walking into the fire. Here's the quote. You will be my kalasar," she told them. I see the faces of slaves. I free you. Take off your collars. Go if you wish. No one shall harm you. If you stay, it will be as brothers and sisters, husbands and wives.
3: So, with Danny, who still has some naivete you'd expect from a young girl, about to enter the cruel heartland of the slave trade, we sense she isn't going to like what she sees. But in fact, it's what she hears that first offends her, with Krasnis calling her a Westerosi whore, thinking that she won't understand the Valyrian tongue.
2: And then we get to hear how the Unsullied are made. Children are taken at age five and undergo a truly horrific training regime that involves being castrated, forced to kill a puppy, and then later made to kill a baby in front of its mother's eyes. The true horror and reality of the slave trade is now apparent. Remember that Danny relates to those who end up in slavery as children. She later says, Do you know what it is like to be sold, squire? I do. My brother sold me to Carl Drogo for the promise of a golden crown. Well, Drogo crowned him in gold, though not as he had wished, and I... My sun and stars made a queen of me, but if he had been a different man, it might have been much otherwise. Do you think I have forgotten how it felt to be afraid?
3: After hearing about murdering children, despite keeping up a front, Danny feels faint, and we can sense her disgust. When she asks if the Unsullied would betray her, if some enemy of mine should offer them freedom, We see perhaps the first hint that liberating them has crossed her mind. Her inquiries about unsullied behaviour serve her well when she later turns them on
2: Krasnus. And despite knowing what he's going to say, she asks Baristan if she should buy them, and he replies that a slave army in Westeros is a terrible idea. Yet I must have some army, is her response, and so we really see her dilemma. She needs an army. They must not be slaves, yet the best option is the unsullied. She must have them all, yet has no coin. And she deplores the slave masters, yet they have the army.
3: So she has to come up with a plan that resolves all of these problems. And in conversation with Jorah, she learns two important things. First, that the slave trade revolves around slaver's bay. If there were no slavers there, there'd be nobody for the Dothraki and so on to sell slaves to, at least not significantly. And Jorah also tells her that Rhaegar fought his battles with honour and still died for it.
2: Mm, So now Danny is thinking about Slaver's Bay as a huge cog in the slavery machine. And also is reminded that fighting with honour got her brother Rhaegar killed. So, perhaps being treacherous can sometimes get you what you want. So, she formulates her plan, and now it's time to see Danny the Conqueror in action.
3: Okay, so first, Danny plays on the greed of the slavers. They resist her wish for all the unsullied plus the trainees, but there are hints to a greedy excitement among the masters. Then she offers Drogon. The key thing here is that Danny insists on. Every last unsullied. She knows that leaves the masters completely vulnerable, but in their greed, they don't realise that.
2: And Danny knows, as a vital part of the slave trade, they don't expect to be attacked, or else nobody could sell them slaves, something that she's learnt. So she's taking advantage of the very limited information that she's been given. She even recalls Giskari history, so she's being very smart here. She thinks, the Giskari lust for dragons, how could they not? Five times had old Gis contended with Valeria when the world was young, and five times gone down to bleak defeat, for the freehold had dragons, and the Empire had none.
3: Then comes the day of the trade, and Danny has even lied about her plans to all of her people, an excellent move which ensures the element of surprise is maximized. When she's handed over Drogon and gets the whip in return, it's time for one of the most exciting moments in the books. She makes sure the Unsullied are aware that they are now hers, as Miss and I has already told her, they will simply obey without question.
2: And Krasnis gets a fitting taste of the slaver's whip as she tears his face open with the sharp claws and informs the masters that a dragon is no slave. She calls out to Drogon, And once again, it's noted her dragon removes her sense of fear. And then, Dracarys.
3: Dracarys! Dragonfire! Drogon lights up Krasnus, his eyes melt, and Danny orders her unsullied to kill the masters. Astapor, Drogon, and a huge army are now hers. It was an excellent plan, brave, treacherous, but executed to perfection. She resolves all the aforementioned problems in one go, and the only remaining problem concerns the fact that she now has slaves.
2: Yeah, and as Barristan had pointed out, slaves are really bad for her hopes of Westeros and also bad for her conscience. So she frees them. This is similar to when she freed slaves before stepping onto the pyre, and once again she shows that loyalty can be inspired in many different ways. Not just by force and fear. The unsullied stick with Danny without the need for a slaver's whip.
3: So, in taking Astapor, Danny shows tactical acumen, cunning, problem solving skills, and bravery. She knows her own strengths and her foes' weaknesses, and she uses every piece of information at her disposal to get the end results she wants. She doesn't have time to make a thorough plan. Instead, she again shows her adeptness at acting on intuition and spontaneity. However, conquering Astapor was just phase one of her plan.
2: Yeah, now Danny has a huge army and realizes that if she's to smash the slave trade, she must next take Yunkai. She also knows she must go for Marine after that. So when she's outside of Yunkai, there's hints that one of her prime objectives is to take the city without shedding too much blood. She needs to take care of her own forces. She needs to bolster her troops with people she can take off the Yunkai as well. And finally, she needs cavalry as her own army is lacking.
3: So Danny's first smart move is with her tiny contingent of Dothraki. They are her only cavalry, and not all are of outstanding fighting ability. So she makes her blood riders, her kos as well. Kos are like Dothraki generals. She's giving up some of her personal protection in order to organize, mobilize, and make the best use of her Dothraki.
2: So now her Dothraki can be a scouting force, and so this small band of men now provides valuable information and will also be used to neutralise enemy scouts later on. So next Danny sees her foe, some half-trained Yunkai soldiers flanked by two sailsword cavalry companies. And it says, She'd ridden too long with Dothraki not to have a healthy respect for what mounted warriors could do to foot. The Unsullied could withstand their charge, but my freedmen will be slaughtered.
3: So Danny draws on experience, knowing the value of cavalry, but she also knows the fickleness of sellswords and again shows quick wits, inviting the sellsword leaders to meet her two hours apart. She knows they'll come to see the dragons and to assess her. So she shows a fine ability to evaluate people. She understands motives and in this sense is wise beyond her years
2: another move Danny has made is to challenge the Unsullied to start thinking for themselves. It might be safer to keep them running like machines, but Danny sees the potential both as a humanist and as a military strategist in capitalising on the freedom that she's granted them.
3: And she gives them autonomy at first by telling them to choose their own leaders and their own names, so democracy and identity are the devices she's using. Their elected general, Greyworm, is apparently quick to learn and seems very loyal, so there might be a payoff for Danny's approach. Here's a quote If battle is joined, let Grey Worm show wisdom as well as valor, Danny told him. Spare any slave who runs or throws down his weapon. The fewer slain, the more remain to join us after. This one will remember, he replied.
2: Yes, Danny's sharing some faith in the independence of the unsullied. And when she meets the three leaders of the Stormcrows, she knows that she can take Yunkai by force and perhaps a lesser conqueror might just have steamed right in. But as we said, she wants those cavalry for the bigger picture and also wants to minimise bloodshed. Her treachery in Astapor is noted by Prendal, a Giskari man and this is one example of how her methods in Asapor might actually come back to haunt her.
3: And yet, Danny invites the Stormcrows to turn cloak using promises of gold and the threat of death, two things known to sway cell swords. After refusing, a glance from the handsome Dario Naharis as they leave reminds us that Danny has another attractive facet her beauty.
2: Yes she does. And two hours later, and Danny presumably timed it like this to create a degree of paranoia between the two sellsword factions, and she meets Miro of the Second Sons. She uses knowledge of history when she says The Second Sons have faced worse odds and run at Kohor when the three thousand made their stand. And Miro doesn't budge and is really offensive. And now we see a masterstroke from Danny. She gives him a wagon of wine, and she's outsmarted Miro here. He thinks it's a tribute, but Danny knows he will likely be drunk when she chooses to attack now.
3: Alas last comes the Yunkai envoy, who tries to pay her off. Danny makes it clear that she not only wants to liberate the slaves... But will plunder all the gold anyway. She gives him three days to meet terms she knows he'll never meet, and has given the cell swords only a day to respond. And as the Yunkish envoy leaves, Danny reveals her plan to attack that very night. Again, there's an element of treachery, or at least trickery. But Danny knows the value of a surprise attack.
2: So the Dothraki Kos arrange the killing of enemy scouts, essential if they're to catch the foe unaware. When Danny herself proposes a three pronged attack, the reactions of Jora and Baristan, two really seasoned warriors, let us know that Danny's military acumen is far beyond her years.
3: And the assault actually turns into a four pronged attack when Dario Naharis returns to her, having killed the other Stormcrow leaders and turned cloak. Danny orders the Stormcrows to take the Yunkai in the rear and puts her faith in Dario.
2: And when news of the battle reaches Danny, we see once again all of her objectives have been accomplished. It's a quite amazing victory in this sense. She lost just 12 of her own men, whilst 200 Yunkai were killed. Maximum result, minimum bloodshed, just as she wanted. The storm crows turned, and the second sons were drunk on her wine, and so stayed out of the battle entirely, and they yielded. And so the conquering of Yunkai was a huge, resounding success for Danny.
3: Yeah, it was an overwhelming victory, and of course, this chapter ends with the liberation of thousands of slaves who all scream, Mother! So she's a mother of dragons, a mother of liberated peoples, and this scene fulfills one of the House of the Undying Prophecies.
2: Right, and again we see Danny finding family in strangers. And after the liberation of Yunkai, there's a third and final slaver city in the bay that she has her eye on. She knows if she takes Marine, the slave trade will be on its knees. However, she now has an entourage. ...of around 80,000 people... ...less than a quarter of whom... ...are actually soldiers. And unlike Astapor... ...Marine knew what was coming. So they harvested...
3: ...burnt the fields and poisoned the wells. The message is clear. Danny must take this well-fortified city quickly... ...or risk mass starvation... ...an early clue that liberation can cause problems. The Marines champion... Osnak's opal taunts Danny's troops, emboldening those behind the city walls. Again, Danny must act quickly and with success if she wants to keep morale high.
2: Yeah, and her first big decision is who to send up against Osnak. Danny chooses Strong Belwas, which was a big surprise to her inner circle, and here's her explanation Strong Belwas was a slave here in the fighting pits. If this highborn Osnak should fall to such, the great masters will be shamed. While if he wins, well it is a poor victory for one so noble, one that Marine can take no pride in.
3: So this was a great choice. No matter if Belwas won or lost, it was very smart. And Danny also thinks to herself that Belwas is relatively disposable as he didn't lead other men. So she thinks quickly, is sure of herself, and again displays problem-solving abilities. She's set up a battle where she can't lose.
2: Yeah, it's already a great choice, but it actually turns out to be inspired as Belwas evades Oznak's lance and goes on to kill him quite easily – a blow for the morale of the besieged city, especially considering Belwas shat in their general direction. <laughs>
3: Okay, maybe a little nod to Monty Python there. And so Danny finds herself in a difficult situation. Marine has solid walls, excellent defenses, and they've ensured there's no wood for siege weapons. Her three ships aren't enough for a maritime attack. Danny's people will soon go hungry, and there's already cases of disease.
2: So things could get very bleak for Danny here, but fortunately, she gets a lucky break. She's counselled to go to Westeros or seek other foe. But then Brown Ben Plum, who's now in charge of the Second Sons, mentions the sewers. He'd once escaped Marine via the sewers, and so knows they're away past the big city walls. Now that Barristan and Jura have revealed their traitor statuses, they're the men chosen to lead the disgusting attack, along with Belwes and 20 others.
3: And so the sewer rats set off, and Danny embarks on an ambitious two-pronged attack. The sewer rats will create a slave uprising from within the city while her main forces attack the gates, providing both a distraction and a fighting front. And with no siege weapons and no wood, Danny comes up with an ingenious plan.
2: Yes, she takes apart her three ships, and using the metal figureheads as ramheads makes rams out of the masts one of which was called Joso's Cock after the ship it was taken from. The ship's hulls are also torn up to make more siege weapons. In a way this shows excellent resourcefulness as the ships were her only source of wood. But it also recalls the Royanar Queen Nymeria who burned her fleet of ships upon the shores of Dawn, symbolising that there was no looking back. Which parallels closely one of Danny's major themes. If I look back, I am lost.
3: And so, once again, Danny's plan worked. The eastern gate of Marine was breached, although there was lots of bloodshed this time. But victory was won when the sewer rats struck the chains off the fighting pit slaves, triggering the internal uprising Danny had hoped for. The last resistance was crushed by the unsullied, and so Danny is now a blooded conqueror. It says, no one was calling her Daenerys the Conqueror yet, but perhaps they would. Egon the Conqueror had one Westeros with three dragons, but she had taken Marine with sewer rats and a wooden cock in less than a day.
2: Yes. So, after starting out with almost nothing, Danny conquered three cities in Slaver's Bay. She showed many great qualities you'd expect from a Conqueror, from resourcefulness to tactical acumen to leadership skills. She liberated thousands of suffering slaves, brought freedom to the area, and turned a vile culture on its head. Danny conquered in a way that upheld her personal values and inspired the loyalty of people by love and not fear.
3: Right, and for all these reasons, we can see why Danny is such a popular character. What a rise she's had since the days with Viserys, the pendulum of power has well and truly swung her way. But perhaps so far, her most significant conquering is of the fear and terror she felt early on, back when she was just a commodity to be traded.
2: However, the assessment of Danny as a conqueror actually grows more and more complex as she decides to stay in Marine and rule where we get to see the aftermath of her actions, methods and conquest. Now her arc moves into a phase of leadership, so next we'll look at Danny as a ruler. But first, let's stay on the topic of conquering just for a minute. Here's a reading of everyone's favourite moment from Astapor. It's time for some Dragonflame.
3: It is done. Krasnys agreed, giving the chain a sharp pull to bring Drogon down from the litter. Danny mounted her silver. She could feel her heart thumping in her chest. She felt desperately afraid. Was this what my brother would have done? She wondered if Prince Rhaegar had been this anxious when he saw the usurper's host formed up across the trident with all their banners floating on the wind. She stood in her stirrups and raised the harpy's fingers above her head for all the unsullied to see. "'It is done!' she cried at the top of her lungs. "'You are mine!' She gave the mare her heels and galloped along the first ring, holding the fingers high. "'You are the dragons now! You are bought and paid for! It is done! It is done!' She glimpsed Old Grazdan, turn his grey head sharply. "'He hears me speak Valyrian.' The other slavers were not listening.' They crowded around Krasnus and the dragon, shouting advice. Though the Astapori yanked and tugged, Drogon would not budge off the litter. Smoke rose gray from his open jaws, and his long neck curled and straightened as he snapped the slaver's face. "'It is time to cross the trident,' Danny thought, as she wheeled and rode her silver back. Her blood riders moved in close around her. "'You are in difficulty,' she observed." "'He will not come,' Krasny said. "'There is a reason. A dragon is no slave.' "'And Danny swept the lash down as hard as she could across the slaver's face. Krasny screamed and staggered back, the blood running red down his cheeks into his perfumed beard. "'The harpy's fingers had torn his features half to pieces with one slash, "'but she did not pause to contemplate the ruin.' Drogon! She sang out loudly, sweetly, all her fear forgotten. Dracarys!
2: Okay, that was Danny conquering Astapor, and that didn't go so well for Krasnis. A perfect example of the excitement that Danny can bring to the story. And as we learned, she took the three cities of Slaver's Bay with great haste. So, now let's consider Danny as a ruler.
3: Yeah, so with the slave trade now on its knees in Slaver's Bay, Danny decided to stay and rule. This is a decision she took after leaving Aztapor in the hands of a healer, a scholar, and a priest. The Chosen Three allegedly schemed to return power to the masters, and so a butcher named Cleon slaughtered them and declared himself king.
2: And so already we see the lasting effects of Danny's conquering style. She thinks, All my victories turn to dross in my hands. Whatever I do, all I make is death and horror. And Cleon is not only making plans against Junkai... But has taken highborn boys to make new and sullied.
3: So when considering what to do with Marine, she realizes she can't let the city turn into another Astapor, and so decides to be its queen and rule. This is a new test for Danny, where we can not only further assess her leadership skills, but actually reassess her conquering exploits as well.
2: And Danny faces many problems as ruler of Marine. These Dance with Dragons chapters are full of dilemmas. We'll show that they are almost all interlinked. We've seen Danny grow as a leader of people since those early days. As she grasped power in Drogo's kalasar, she led people through the Red Waste and experienced loss there. And her conquering showed flashes of brilliant leadership strategy. However, Marina is the first time Danny has ruled over a massive population. And if she's going to one day rule Westeros, she needs to learn here. Sadly for her, things don't go well from the offset.
3: No, they don't. And we're going to identify the problems Danny faces so that we can explore their roots and her policies. She has to deal with the Sons of the Harpy, Uniting Marine, Slavery, Her Dragons, Food, Trade, Disease, Astapor, Yunkai and preparing to go to Westeros. So that's 10 huge problems on her plate as she tries to continue to change the culture in Slaver's Bay.
2: Yeah, and so many problems are right off the bat. It's no wonder that she has a tough time. First of all, let's look at the Sons of the Harpy. This is a shadow organisation who murder her people. They seem to be intent on restoring Myranese traditions to the city and represents the continuous threat of an uprising by the conquered masters.
3: And the sons have an increasing role in the story, with both their effects on Danny as a person, and in shaping her policies. She thinks, I'm still at war, only now I'm fighting shadows. So when she learns that nine murders have occurred in a single night, Danny is at a loss how to deal with it. Learning that Missandei's brother, Masador, was murdered, she hands a wine cellar over for questioning to the shavepate. Two unsullied have been poisoned in his shop, so he's a suspect, yet Danny notes that he might be innocent, so he should be questioned sweetly. She's being rational here in spite of her anger.
2: However, Danny is then informed that a harpist was one of those murdered, and finally Danny snaps. The shavepate can now not only question the wine cellar sharply, i.e., torture him. But he can do the same to his daughters. Danny didn't even check the ages of the daughters. They might even be children. So Danny went from arguing that the wine cellar could be innocent to sanctioning the torture of him and his daughters, all in the blink of an eye.
3: Yeah, Danny is reacting out of anger. She has these two sides to her personality. She can be so empathetic, but also very aggressive. And it's the mix of the two in her personality which make her such an interesting character. We wonder if the connection of the harpist to her brother Rhaegar, who is also a harpist, might have had some effect here. In any case, we can see here that as a ruler, her aggressive side can betray her empathetic side in going against her core moral principles.
2: And Danny must be afraid to leave the city and help Astapor, which really needs help, at least in part, because she fears what the sons could do if she left the city with her troops. So we see for the first time how Danny is in a dilemma. She is trapped.
3: OK, and let's look at Astapor, another huge problem. Danny has really upset the balance of power in the whole region. Not only is there internal conflict, but she now has enemies all around. Astapor became a slaver city again as soon as her back was turned. The city's class system was spun on its head with the masters and slavers simply changing places.
2: So Astapor is aggressive towards Yunkai and now has a war to deal with. Danny can't come to the rescue, as she later notes... If I had marched to Astapor, I would have lost Marine. The Astapuri suffer tremendously: the starvation, cannibalism, and the outbreak of disease. With Astapor brought low, Yunkai now becomes a threat to Marine, as it means they can march to her without Astapuri interference. And this is really the start of the Battle of Fire, which we covered in the last episode.
3: Right, and remember that disease was driven north by the Yunkai, leading to the arrival of the Pale Mare outside of Marine's gates. It's a horrible chain reaction. One problem feeds another. As the diseased Astapori starve outside her walls, and Yunkai teams up with other factions and places she's inadvertently upset, such as Tolos and Mentaris, Daddy experiences firsthand the horror created as a result of her sacking of Astapor.
2: Yeah, and Danny says she gave these people freedom, which is true. However, and this is something last episode's guest Brendan Beefish has mentioned, Danny didn't leave a portion of her force in Astapor to defend the new regime she installed. He was naive to think such a quick change in culture was possible without the assistance of a solid force. As an Astapori petitioner tells her, you gave us death. Not freedom.
3: And not only that, but Danny didn't really overthrow Yung Kai properly. It's no surprise that they've regrouped and now oppose her. It says she was coming to regret leaving the Yellow City untaken after defeating its army in the field.
2: So again, we see that the roots to Danny's problems really lie with the manner in which she conquered. It's sometimes said that Danny is a better conqueror than ruler. But on closer inspection, we're beginning to see that the two are inextricably linked, and that the seeds of our current dilemmas grow from our conquering phase.
3: Okay, so huge problems with Astapor and Yunkai. Atrocities and the threat of a large-scale war with a city that had not long ago bent the knee. Now let's look at yet more problems from the list of ten we gave. Another huge one is trade. It says... Marine's trade had dwindled away to nothing since she had ended slavery.
2: Yeah, this really boils down to slavery. First of all, the region depends on slavery, perhaps something that ironically dates back to the Valerian conquest of the area. Second, aside from actual slaves, she's upset the socio-economic system in the area so much that no one wants to trade with her. But she sees a solution in Zaro Zohan Daxos and Kalf.
1: Hmm,
3: Danny has no ships to trade with. Remember, she turned her three ships into siege weapons. Again, her conquering days are coming back to haunt her rule of marine. So Zaro brings thirteen ships, which in Danny's mind is enough to start trading with, kickstarting the Marinese post slavery economy. However, The Carthene are very unhappy with her stance on slavery and what she's done to the
4: area.
2: Yeah, Carth can no longer acquire slaves, so its class system and culture is really in some trouble. And geography is perhaps the problem here. Carth lies beyond the Red Waste, which the Dothraki won't cross with new slaves. So Zaro and company relied on Astapor to ship slaves to them. Danny has upset the slaving supply chain, and that is very pervasive. So she now has enemies all around, and one of them turns out to be Carth.
3: And not only is Carth vital to her trade and shipping plans, but Danny's refusal to take the thirteen ships and leave for Westeros triggers a declaration of war. To her credit, Danny decides that she can't abandon Marine for Westeros. That the city needs to be healed first. But the result is that the Carthian ships now blockade the bay, and later the Schezhasidan River, and are joined by other vessels. Again, Danny dismantling her three ships is problematic. She can't protect her waters. No new ships can be built because after Danny took Astapor and Yunkai and word reached Marine, they burnt all the trees in the area because they knew she was coming. Once again, Danny's tactics for conquering, which seemed brilliant at the time are causing grave, long-term consequences for her as a queen.
2: So, with no trade, this problem overlaps with yet another – food. When Danny took Marine, there were ample food supplies. However, there's now many mouths to feed and it's noted early on that she needs to find a new way of bolstering food supplies as they will dwindle very quickly. And with no trade coming to the area, there's very little food actually coming in. Not only did the old masters burn trees to prevent siege weapons, but they ruined food and crops, perhaps with the hope that Danny's siege of their city would be broken by starvation. They saw Danny's large host of soldiers and freedmen as a weakness, something which Danny acknowledged very early on. They burnt olive groves, and Danny notes, It takes seven years before an olive tree begins to bear, and 30 years before it can truly be called productive.
3: So, Danny tries to plant trees and seeds, but as that olive quote highlighted, these things take time, something which she doesn't have a lot of. No one will trade with her. People have even stopped visiting the city due to the lack of fighting pits. The economy is dead, and Marine is nowhere near the level of self-sustenance that it needs to thrive in
2: the post-slavery era. But Danny does have a plan. whilst seeds are being planted, she finds the one race who must be very, very glad that the slave trade has been disrupted, the Lazarene. And a deal is made, so there's a brief hope of agricultural trade for marine. However, going back to the Carthian aggression, some of Zaro's ships sprint up the Skahazadan river blocking the proposed trade route with the lazarene, which was going to be by barge.
3: Mm, Again, Danny's problems overlap, a huge interlinked web of dilemmas, and one which George has layered with great care to provide this sense of political realism. And we see the first effect of Danny's food problem when the Astapori are driven to her, dying from the pale mare, and she can't afford to feed them. They starve to death outside the walls, and although Danny walks amongst them, showing her motherly and pathetic side, there's simply nothing she can do. Here are two quotes: "These are men and women, sick and hungry and afraid, my children. I should have gone to Astapor, and then, all I did in Astapor was make ten thousand arrows.
2: So it's a very sad situation. Danny does have her moments of anger, but she often tries to do the right thing. She's finding it impossible to be a conqueror stroke ruler and a saviour both. It's devastating for her to see this trail of disaster in her wake. And talking about unpleasant moments for Danny, let's move on to another problem her dragons.
3: Yeah, so let's remember it was Drogon who kick-started and facilitated this revolution with Dracarys. And the dragons are like weapons of mass destruction that we have in our world, with one crucial difference. These three atomic bombs are living and breathing and have minds of their own.
2: Right, so the first problem with the dragons is that now Danny's ruling marine, she simply has no time for them. She takes a first-hand approach to ruling hearing the grievances of the local people, and perhaps delegates too little. This is one of many instances of her being selfless in the pursuit of a stable and peaceful city. But with that, she neglects her key military assets. She thinks, I have left them too much to themselves, but where am I to find the time for them?
3: So, the dragons are not only growing in size, but they're growing unruly. And soon Danny is presented with the bones of a child. She wonders if this is some plot, but decides the father's behaviour points to this being a real claim. The only course of action she can take, then, is to chain up her dragons.
2: Yeah, the breaker of chains is now using chains on her own children. In a sense, Danny is now a mother to her dragons and to her people, and she had to make a choice between them. She decided that the dragons must be put out of harm's way, and this theme of shackles is very poignant. At first, this seems like a good solution, however cruel to the dragons. Yet later, we see the full consequences. The dragons were a great deterrent to her foes.
3: And with Yunkai stirring and nurturing strong alliances, Danny really needs her dragons primed and ready. This is something Brown Ben Plum recognises. He wants to see those dragons ready for war. Because Danny refuses, he ultimately turns cloak, giving Yunkai the second sons,
2: a loss for Marine. So in protecting her Mirini's children, not only do her dragons suffer captivity, but she also loses some power. Danny does her best for this divided city, yet continues to suffer as a ruler. And so, let's look at the division of the city. Early on in Dance, Danny thinks, To rule Marine, I must win the Myronese, however much I may despise them.
3: Hmm. Danny's upset the class system, and remember, she crucified 163 masters, perhaps indiscriminately. She battles to uphold her stance on slavery, sometimes with both masters and former slaves doing what they can to reinstate old dynamics. The sons of the harpy are linked to the old elite, who in turn the shavepates oppose. And so Maureen has these huge internal problems.
2: And Danny at first tries to resolve the harpy problem by taking child hostages, or cupbearers, from the old masters, as well as decreeing a blood tax. But we see her heart in conflict with itself, her mother side and her aggressive side when she chooses not to harm the hostages. This was a victory for her opposition in a way, but not one that we can blame her for. Yet another catch-22.
3: In search of peace, and an answer to almost all of the many intertwining problems we've highlighted, Danny decides to marry his Darzolorak, despite being in love with the blue-bearded charmer, dario Harris. It says, My people are bleeding, dying, a queen belongs not to herself, but to the realm. Marriage or carnage, those are my choices, a wedding or a war. So here we see that, despite all the flaws of Dany's rule, she's willing to give herself to Marine, to give everything she can. No one can deny that her idea of ruling is to put the people first.
2: And the wedding came with yet more compromises to her rule and ethos. Kai is free to slave again and sets up a human market right outside the Miranese walls. Plus, the fighting pits were reopened where men tear each other apart for the amusement of onlookers. Danny's dreams of a slaveless bay are further crushed under the weight of politics and complications. It seems in hindsight that she tried to bring change to the region too quickly and that the slaver's culture runs too deep, perhaps dating back thousands of years.
3: So with all these problems and the progress turned right back around into regression, it's no wonder that when atop Drogon's back in the fighting pit, Danny shouts higher. In a sense, it's like she's running away from everything she can no longer face. Which provides an opportunity for Danny to reassess and change once again, as we'll discuss.
2: But overall, Danny's time in Marine as a ruler has been a disaster, really, something which she seems fully aware of. But we think that, as we said earlier, it's just too simplistic to say that Danny conquers well and rules poorly. A huge portion of those Miranese problems are rooted firmly in her conquering phase. She acted on impulse, starting a domino effect. We've previously highlighted that her spontaneity is a really great strength that she has. But in Marine, we start to see a flip side to that, coupled with her aggressive approach.
3: And because of her conquering methods, she gave herself an impossible task in ruling. She couldn't be both a conqueror of slavery and a queen for peace in this part of the world. And so it's very difficult to judge Danny's ruling abilities. The issues in Marine are so complex, and she set herself up to fail. If she'd inherited a peaceful kingdom, as many rulers have been lucky enough to have, the story might have been very different.
2: Yeah, we think it might, but many of Danny's poor decisions were actually catch-22s. She was bound for failure, whatever she'd done as Queen of Marine, we think. And so here we see that you can't just divide her conquering and then her ruling. They are part of a whole, and things that seemed at one point like great conquering strategy later had devastating consequences for her rule and for her people.
3: And so we get to the heart of the problem. When Aegon I invaded Westeros, ruled and started a lasting dynasty, it seemed he planned the whole thing well in advance. For starters, Aegon knew Westeros. There's evidence that he visited Old Town and the Arbor, and maybe Lannisport as well, before the Conquest. The Painted Table, that remarkable piece on Dragonstone that represented every river, town, and castle in Westeros, was made at his behest in the years before the Conquest. When a proposal to wed the daughter of King Argelac Durindan of Storm's End to Aegon's friend and possible half-brother, Oris Baratheon, was rejected with scorn, Aegon summoned all of his friends and bannermen to sit in council with him and his sister-wives. For seven days they planned their course of action before sending forth a cloud of ravens to the kings and lords of Westeros, bearing an ultimatum, submit or be conquered. And while his conquest took nearly two years and was not without setbacks, it was in most regards efficient and merciful whenever possible, with the end goal of having a kingdom united and thriving to rule.
2: So there you have it. Aegon is an example of a great conqueror ruler. His conquering strategy was so sound that it enabled him to come in and rule with relative peace. He made compromises such as allowing conquered kings to continue ruling their lands as vassal lords. He played the game, just as Danny did a marine. But his planning was much, much better, and so ruling was a lot easier. And Aegon used his force multiplier, his dragons, to great advantage something Danny was at first unable, due to their youth, and later unwilling to do. In addition, Danny was new to the area. She didn't think much further than the conquering itself, and so made huge errors in the aftermath with both Astapor and Yunkai, leaving one unguarded and one, as she herself put it, untaken.
3: Yeah, so Danny's downfall here is that she wasn't thinking of the long view from the offset as Aegon did. Slaver's Bay is in far worse shape than when she arrived, with very little of the positive changes actually taking root for the long term. Slavery's back, there's disease, famine, and despite thinking she made all her sacrifices for peace, there's now a huge war with the Battle of Fire. After the adrenaline rush of Dracaris, George is making us see the reality of Danny's good intentions, and it's sad to see her admirable anti-slavery stance take such a shot on the nose like this.
2: And given that Danny herself admits that the horrors of Astapor are rooted in her liberation, it's another blow when Zaro says Maureen is, "'A poor city that once was rich, a hungry city that once was fat.'" A bloody city that once was peaceful. And Danny thinks, his accusations stung. There was too much truth in them.
3: Mm, for a character brimming with so much empathy and love for the common man, it's no wonder this hurts her. Marine has brought greyness into Danny's character. She now has the complexities you'd expect from anyone who's come into power in politics. With the flaws to her ruling well and truly highlighted, her pendulum of power has swung again, this time away from her. But thinking back to what started this whole adventure Danny needing troops and Jorah directing them to Slaver's Bay it's interesting to think what will happen when she invades Westeros. We're all hoping that she learns from her experience in Marine, and we'll have to see how Danny's empathetic side and her aggressive side balance out when she's ready for Westeros, another place that's already suffered enough. Danny must now embrace fire and blood if she's to one day rule Westeros, and this time let's hope she also embraces Egg on the Conqueror and has a plan
2: not just to conquer, but to rule. Yeah, and speaking of ruling, we find some interesting commonalities between Danny and the ideal king Varys describes to Kevin Lannister in the dance epilogue. He's speaking of young Griff and the qualities that have been apparently fostered in the boy to make him suitable for the throne. In addition to the usual sort of education a noble boy might be given, we're told that Aegon has lived among common people and knows how to work and feed himself. And specifically, he knows what it is like to be hungry, to be hunted, to be afraid. Aegon knows that kingship is his duty, that a king must put his people first and live and rule for them.
3: Mm, but these are qualities that can be attributed to Danny as well. From her youth in the cities of Essos to her young adulthood living with the Dothraki and her struggles with ruling in Slaver's Bay. One thing we see in her time and again is her concern for what would be called the small folk in Westeros. And when she said a queen belongs not to herself but to the realm, she explicitly echoed Varys' words to Kevin. So despite the disaster of marine, readers can still wonder whether Danny has what it takes to be a successful leader.
2: And so we're going to speculate further about Danny's future. But first we want to recall her dream of change in Slaver's Bay. Of uniting the downtrodden slaves. People sold as she had once been. So it's time for some music from the fandom now. Here's Carleen with Dragon Queen, Misa.
3: Carleen with Dragon Queen Misa. It's the third time we've featured Carlene's music here on Radio Westeros and each track is great. We link to Carleen on our website if you want to check out more of her music. We do recommend it.
2: Yes we do. We really love Carlene's music. So we've done lots of analysis today and have a good feel for Danny's themes, triumphs and disappointments so far. Now it's time to look at what happened in her final chapter in dance, and what she might face in the Winds of Winter.
3: Okay, so from Daznak's pit, Dany flew away on Drogon's back into the Dothraki Sea. In removing shackles from thousands of slaves, as we saw in the last segment, in a sense, she put the shackles on herself. We come back to that quote, a queen belongs to her people, not to herself, and so in a sense... This was a flight into freedom for Danny. Yes,
2: yeah, she got to leave her problems behind. However, she soon learns that not only is Marine still gnawing away at her conscience, but that life can be very tough in the Dothraki Sea. Once a place of freedom for her, she's now struggling to meet her basic needs. Although there's clearly a big leap in her bonding with Drogon, He still does what he wants to do a lot of the time.
3: And so she can't get back to Marine. She's not well, and from the description, it seems she might have suffered a miscarriage too, though she herself doesn't realize it. Her hands are also burnt, dispelling any notion that she's heat or fireproof, and perhaps above all, she's hungry. At this point, the reader might wonder why she's been taken on this path, but it soon becomes clear.
2: Yeah, now enter the Dothraki once again. At the end of her chapter, she's eating with Drogon and is found by Carl Jako. He was one of Carl Drogo's cos, who took slaves and horses and left to form his own khalasar when Drogo was dying. With his bloodrider Mago, he was ultimately responsible for the cruel death of Eroa, the Lazarine child who Danny had saved from rape. Near the end of game, when Danny heard this news, she told her own people, I swear to you, these men will die screaming. And so his appearance sets up a great cliffhanger for the winds of winter. So let's first discuss the possibilities here.
3: Okay, and we're going to look at two schools of thought. I don't think we've got anything completely new to add, so let's just look at two ideas from the fandom and see if we can add some depth. The first is very simple, that Drogon and Danny will unleash some force on the Dothraki here right away. Then Danny will take over the Kalasar and head to Ves Dothrak, perhaps deciding she needs an army.
2: And the other idea we want to talk about is that Drogon flies away. At the start of the chapter, it's pointed out that Drogon more or less does what he wants, and every night he has a routine of flying home when it gets dark. It says, And no matter how far the dragon flew each day, come nightfall, some instinct drew him home. His home, not mine, is what Danny thinks. And just before she sees Jaco, it's noted that the western sky had turned the colour of a blood bruise.
3: Right, so it sounds like dusk with the sun setting in the west. And it also says that there are burn marks all around the ground near Danny. Drogon feeds here. Drogon has come this way before, she realized, like a chain of gray islands, the marks of his hunting. So, does Drogon come here to feed, then fly off home when it gets dark? If so, this could mean bad news for Danny. She could be taken captive and taken back to Vaes Dothrak. Remember that by Dothraki traditions, Danny should have been taken to join the crones
2: upon Drogo's death. Yeah, and we're actually conveniently reminded of this tradition when Danny first sees a Dothraki scout. It says, If he found her there, he would kill her, rape her, or enslave her. At best, he would send her back to the crones of the Dosh Kaleen, where good Khaleesi were supposed to go when the Khalsa died. And this would mean complete and utter disempowerment for Danny, Something George might like to do to her before, well, giving her a huge Dothraki army. Drogon could show up at Vaes Dothrak later and display his powers there, for example.
3: And this idea has a lot more tension and complexity than Danny simply roasting Jaco and taking over his khalasar. But there's two schools of thought and more than a few offshoots from them out there. However, one thing they seem to agree upon is that Danny will end up in Veyas Dothrak, and that somehow the stallion that mounts the world prophecy will be fulfilled, something we'll leave to talk about in a future prophecy episode. But that could be the purpose of this journey into the Dothraki Sea, that she gets an army and is now ready to invade Westeros.
2: Yeah, George has indicated that he's been writing about the Dothraki, and also that Danny will embrace fire and blood in the new book so lots of exciting things to come. So we can't think of any other reason for Danny meeting the Dothraki if not to unite them to her cause. Now, let's assume she finds a way back to Marine with a huge horde ready to embark on the Ironborn and perhaps Volantine ships that will likely be there in Slaver's Bay.
3: Okay, so she has some major decisions to make. Now let's crack some pots and speculate. What is she going to do about Marine, a huge problem for her? Well, we talked in the last episode about the Pale Mare and how devastating this disease is. With the battle of fire raging and dead bodies being flung around, we think that it's going to spread further and become an even bigger problem. So we were wondering with George's note that Danny will be more aggressive after her trip to the Dothraki Sea if she might have to torch the city.
2: Yeah, remember the house of the undying? Three fires you must light. One for life, one for death, and one to love. Well, Miri's pyre could be the fire for life. And we've wondered, in a kind of crackpot way, if Marie could be the fire for death. The Great Fire of London in 1666 is credited by some for stopping the plague. So, could something similar happen here?
3: Hmm, quite a dark idea for Marine's fate there.
2: Yes, it's a bit too dark for some people, I think.
3: <laughs> well, I mean, she could always move the people over to Yunkai if that city's defeated in the Battle of Fire. And another decision Danny might have to make is if she's to marry Victorian Greyjoy. He might be as dumb as a stump, but he has a fleet, and if he's still around, She just might have to listen to his proposition if his star's out of the picture.
2: Yeah, that sounds like the worst nightmare for Danny fans. It's a horrible matchup. But then again, on the other side of the coin, how often do we see nice pairings (laughs) with dragons, the hellhorn, and Danny, presumably needing to get to Westeros in double time? It will be really interesting to see what happens if those two characters meet. And these are just some of the intriguing storylines we're looking forward to seeing unfolding in the Winds of Winter.
3: Mm, So, if she's going to embrace fire and blood, Danny needs to become ruthless, selfish, and go for the jugular. Whatever happens to her on the Dothraki Sea, it seems she's going to realize all of this is necessary if she's going to conquer Westeros. As Quaithe says to her, perhaps communicating through a glass candle, Remember who you are, Daenerys. And as we know, Daenerys Targaryen is the last dragon, the seed of Aegon the Conqueror.
2: And Dany has shown large amounts of both empathy and destruction in her story so far. She's risen from timid commodity to mother of dragons, Mesa to slaves, and queen to marine. She's also had a pendulum of power swinging right through her arc. Whether you appreciate Danny or not, I think it's really fair to say that she can create excitement to match any character in this series. And we really look forward to seeing how she fares and how her pendulum swings in The Winds of Winter.
3: And thanks for listening to our look at Daenerys Targaryen. Next time we'll be taking a very close look at the Lion of the West – Tywin Lannister, and we hope you come back for that. Now, give credit where credit is due. Thanks to Nine Inch Nails for allowing us to use and remix elements of their music. Thanks to Kevin MacLeod. Visit incompetech.com for royalty-free music. We used Constance, Movement Proposition, Colorless Aura, Decline, and Balzan Groove today. See our licensing page on our website or on the MP3 tag for further details. Thanks to Carleen for her song, Dragon Queen Mysa, and to the History of Westeros podcast for their advert. Finally, thanks to George R R Martin for The World of a Song of Ice and Fire. So, we hope you've enjoyed. Visit RadioWesteros.com for access to all our podcasts.
1: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical
3: manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. And come back next time for some Tywin. Bye for now.